staying alive when you travel abroad on today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by SocialPilot, the social media and marketing tool for bloggers and small businesses. Join over 20,000 social media pros at servenomaster.com backslash socialpilot today. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. It's been another week of excitement where I live on my islands, and a big part of it started with a 6.7 earthquake. And if you know anything about earthquakes, it's pretty high up the scale. They rarely go higher. I think the highest number is nine, and I believe we'll only have a 10 when it's the end of the world. This earthquake uh, was a couple nights ago, and it was bad enough that the airport, all the hotels, and the immigration, the passport office, on the neighboring island where I do most of my business, the larger island next door, they're all broken and closed. The airport runway, so damaged, planes can't land there. In order to deal with this situation, I have to adapt in a bunch of ways. The first is I'm flying to America very soon, and I had to change all my flights around and fly from my island, which has less flights, a lot more complicated, but I was able to change everything around so that my flights from the mainland to America didn't get changed. So I'm still gonna be there, which I'm very excited about. But while all this has been happening, there've been constant rainstorms. It's been kind of hard for me to record these episodes. My throat has been bad. I don't know if you can tell, I'm still sick in the back of my throat. There's like a frog living there. I've been taking medicine, yada, yada. Sometimes you just get something. You have a bunch of kids. They keep bringing stuff home from school. All these challenges have been entering my life. And then yesterday something happened even more intense. My wife is looking out the window uh, the front of our house faces the beach, but the back of our house faces basically the only road on the island. And outside, she saw uh, an accident. Two motorcycles crashed, and a girl was beautiful before the crash, and afterwards, not so much. And while this is really sad, it also reminded me of one of the big dangers of where we live. The main way people actually get hurt here, the only danger here is accidents. Every couple of weeks or a couple of months, there's a motorcycle accident. And it's almost always the same story. It's either at night, or someone's been drinking, or someone's driving too fast. It's always someone being irresponsible, crashing into someone else. And uh, the people, especially foreigners, we have this feeling that when we're abroad, uh, the laws of physics don't apply to us anymore. Just like people think, I can't get arrested in a foreign country because I'm not from there. We have this magical belief, but when foreigners commit crimes in our countries, we definitely want them arrested and deported. So. We have this idea, oh, I'm in Japan, or oh, I'm in India, and nothing can happen to me. I can't get arrested, and the laws of physics no longer apply. Now, I live on a tropical island, and you get used to driving on a scooter. I don't even have a motorcycle. What I have is a moped, so it's an automatic. Your feet sit on front of you inside the bike. It's not a motorcycle. We have the pedals outside, and you have manual gears, any of that stuff but it still easily goes 100 and 120 kilometers per hour. Now, normally, I've never been above 60 on it. I've never been above 60 on it. But you'll be driving your scooter, you think, oh, this isn't such a big deal, going 50 or whatever. You're going 50 kilometers per hour, which is around 30 miles an hour. It's not that fast. But if you're not wearing a helmet, when you crash, it can be real bad. 
And that's what happened yesterday. The girl lost, uh, I didn't see, fortunately. My wife didn't. She said the girl lost her front teeth and, and a lot more. And that's horrible when that happens. You don't want that. We both have helmets. And it was an odyssey to buy a helmet for me and my wife and my daughter. In fact, we had to buy them in three different locations. Because people here, they don't take safety very seriously. And also most people on the island can't actually afford helmets. My helmet, which is the biggest and most expensive one because I have the biggest dumb dumb head, cost as much as many people on the island make in a single month. Not as much as I pay my employees who live on the island, but as much as most other places do. So people simply can't afford the safety and security that they need. And so foreigners come here and they rent a motorcycle, they rent a scooter all the time. They've never driven one before. So if you think it's like driving a car, it's not. When I first moved to Asia and started driving scooters, it was a nightmare. It took me about a month to learn. And it was a very, very rough month. And I could already ride a bicycle, so don't think it's that. It's totally different. And I'm sure going from scooter to motorcycle is not that easy. So people come here, they're on vacation, they think, hey, nothing will happen, or I can't get hurt. And in fact, my wife, her helmet, it's red. And so people make fun of her and call her the Red Power Ranger when she rides her, her bike. Now, when I was out of town recently, a couple of months ago, or about two months ago, she was in a little accident and she wasn't wearing a helmet. She was just driving from our house to a yoga class, which is about 300 yards away. It's about two minutes on the motorcycle, on the scooter. And she fell and hurt her arm. And she didn't want me to know about it. She didn't tell me at first about it because she knew I'd be mad she wasn't wearing her helmet. And I said, well, look at this. We have a baby. We have a toddler. What will happen if you get hurt? And she learned her lesson then. It had been raining a little bit that day, so it was even slipper. And she goes, you know, you're right. I'll wear my helmet all the time. And now she does, even though uh, people make fun of her. And I talked about it yesterday, after she saw the accident, she said, you know what, I'm so glad that you bought us those helmets. Now, it's so, even a slow, small accident right in front of our house where you think you're totally safe, and you're really, really hurt. And so when you're traveling abroad, I don't want you to think that the laws of physics no longer exist. The island I live is significantly safer than most of the places in the world. Very rarely do people die of unnatural causes. But often when people get hurt, it's because of stupidity. I'm in a foreign country. I don't need to wear seatbelts anymore. Laws don't apply here. I'm in a foreign country. Rain can't hurt me. I'll go for a 10-mile walk in the rain at night and get hypothermia. Really common way that people draw, not here, fortunately, but in a lot of coastal places I've lived, is night swimming when they're drunk. I don't even know who assembles these ideas. But I remember when I lived in England, it happened a lot in a couple other places. Every once in a while, you'd hear Someone got drunk at a party, went swimming, and then that was it. Sometimes it's in the ocean, sometimes it's in rivers and lakes. I've heard it in all different types of bodies of water. My brother-in-law, for a very long time, was a public defender. And what he told me, and this was his advice to his clients, was never commit two crimes at once. He said, most people, it's not the first crime that gets you, it's the second. It's when you start compounding. And I thought that was very interesting. I mean, obviously, you're telling people commit crime isn't great, but at least he's telling them to do less. But if you think about it, it's what happens. When you steal a car, you get in trouble when you also start speeding. It's when you add in that second crime, because then they see you speeding, then they check the plates and see that the car is stolen. As soon as you start adding in other crimes, uh, things magnify. For example, if you're robbing a bank and shoot someone, it's a whole different crime. Now you're looking at felony murder. It's a federal crime, not a state crime. And what that means is federal prison, FBI, whole different ballgame because you've done two crimes at once. Now, I'm not suggesting you become a criminal, 
But I am saying it's when you do multiple dumb things at once that life gets worse when you're traveling abroad. And this is what happens here. First of all, you're driving something you don't know how to drive or you're driving a place where you don't know the way around or you don't know how things work. So you're already doing something a little bit risky. Adding in additional factors, like saying, first of all, people come here and they go, oh, you don't have to wear a helmet. They go, Actually, that's not true. It is the law. You have to wear a helmet here. They just don't enforce it very well. And it's because most people can't afford one, so you can't really enforce it. People can't afford helmets, also can't afford the fines. But when they catch foreigners, they certainly do it. And if you go to the big cities, any city, and you're not wearing a helmet, they'll grab you right away. It's just because we live out in the sticks that people think magically things don't happen. And guess what? There are a lot of times when you can drop a motorcycle or a scooter without anyone there to have an accident with. And this is just a one type of accident you can have. Another type of incident people have here is occasionally, about once a month, there's a robbery. Uh, it's a home, someone's house will get robbed, but it's always people come here and they'll rent a house that's like 75 cents a night and then they'll leave $10,000 worth of stuff in. Oh, I left my iPad, my expensive digital camera, my lenses, my GoPro, and people took it. I can't believe it. It's like, why are you in a house that costs a dollar with stuff so expensive? People make the decision to stay somewhere very unsecure with very expensive stuff. And when you put something that valuable in front of people where they know they can easily get it, you create a lot of temptation, which is unfair. In my family, we've never had a problem with any of that type of stuff because we don't stay somewhere that's disproportionately cheap compared to the stuff we have with us. Now, when I was backpacking in my mid-20s, I traveled with basically nothing except for my phone. And this was before iPhones. I had a, um, what did I have? I think at the time I had like a Japanese Toshiba flip phone, something you can't even get outside of Japan. That's when I was living in Japan. I traveled and backpacked around Cambodia and Thailand. And I did enough research to never have a problem. So I stayed in places that were two and three dollars a night, but the only thing I had of any value was always in my pocket. Now I had a couple of other things that were okay in my backpack, you know, entertainment. And when I went on a bus trip, I knew because I looked online, I read in this book, it said, oh, when you take this bus trip from Bangkok to where you catch a boat, they're pretty notorious for going through all the bags under the bus and people get stuff stolen. And I'm on this bus with all these hippie backpackers and I put all my nice stuff, anything I don't want touched, in my backpack. I can't remember exactly what was in it. It's been a long time ago. Maybe I had a laptop, maybe I didn't. I can't remember. It's more than 10 years ago. But I do know I had it all up with me. It was a little bit uncomfortable. I had it between my legs on the bus. Everyone falls asleep. It's like an eight, 12-hour bus. It's one of those overnight buses. And when we get up in the morning, they unload all the bags beside this building. And you have to wait for the morning boat. And everyone goes inside to watch the beach on like a 12-inch TV. I'm like, why are we watching a movie about where we're about to go? This is so dumb. Everyone's seen the beach. That's where we got on the bus in the first place. I go and look in my bag from the downstairs and there's something from someone else's bag is now in my bag, a stranger's bag. And I look around and no one else had even bothered checking their bag. And even when I said, hey guys, they went through our bags, you might want to check your stuff. No one really took it seriously. And later on, when you got the boat to the other island, later on, all these other people go, oh my gosh, stuff is missing. And it's certainly not my fault. It's your own responsibility. You don't take responsibility for your security. All the guidebooks, okay, it's right in the Lonely Planet guidebook. It said, don't put your stuff under the bus they're gonna go through your bag. It's really common on this particular thing. When you spend, you know, again, it's like a $1 bus, that's like a 12 hour trip. Whenever you're on something that's super, super cheap, you have to take responsibility for your own security. We've talked in the past about taking responsibility for your own health. That's why my family has health insurance, really fancy health insurance. Now, my health insurance for my family covers four of us, covers anything, anything super, super crazy. And I have a yearly deductible for the whole family of $5,000. That's kind of what I chose because it's really for emergencies. And so if someone gets really, really hurt, if we have to go to a hospital in another country, that's covered, all that stuff is covered. And it costs around $300 a month, which is less than insurance for a single person by yourself costs in America. 
and it's certainly less than most insurance plans for families. I don't know if they have an insurance plan for four people in America, it's that cheap. It's not even that expensive to protect yourself abroad with these insurances, uh, whether it's sports insurance, travel insurance, backpack insurance. Sometimes it just makes sense to have a few things in place. I've been traveling before abroad. My friend had backpack insurance. His phone got stolen. They replaced it. Uh, some backpack insurance, like a dollar a day. It just depends how you're traveling and what your stuff is worth and all these other things. And if you're doing a sport, whenever I go snowboarding, I definitely get snowboarder insurance. You're probably not going to get hurt, but if you break that leg, you're going to want that specific insurance. Most travel insurance and medical insurance doesn't cover uh, specific sports. There's a list of things I'm not allowed to do with my health insurance. They're all things that I would never do. Uh, skiing off-piste, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, that's way beyond the way I live. It's things like that. It's um, scuba diving below like a really low depth. Uh, what else was on the list? It was all things that like I would never do, like dinosaur fighting. But it's things they have to list that are super extreme. So there, and there are people that love to do that stuff, so you have to get specific insurance. I can barely snowboard enough on the trail. I'm really going to go between the trees? No way. But these little things are, become our responsibility. You know, that's why I'm pretty serious about my health. Yesterday, uh, I had my first pretty bad surfing accident in a long time. I was actually on my paddleboard. I mean, the, the line between the paddleboard and the surfboard is so thin. But I was on my paddleboard because I had a paddle with me. And I'm going into the waves. And I'm like, oh, the waves are really small today. And then a giant one comes. And the last thing you want is for a wave to crash directly on top of you. That's the worst scenario. If a wave crashes right in front of me or right behind me or right next to me on any side, it's fine. As long as it's about three or four or five feet away, I'm fine. But this is the first time it's happened in a long time. I'm facing the wave on my giant board, which is 12 feet long. It's a monster. It's a paddleboard. And the wave crashes right on top of me. It lifts us up and flips us. So I land. I don't even know which way it went. Either I found my back and the board smashed on me or the board flipped and then I crashed on the board. But I ended up hitting my arm, my whole side, all the way uh, from the top of my chest down to my hip. It was all bleeding, just a little bit, like a light bleed. Okay, not like an open wound, but uh, like a road rash style bleed. And the water was really cold, not cold enough to knock you out, but cold enough to shock you a little bit. But I've been swimming in Wales where it's really cold. I've been swimming in California where it's, you know, Arctic freeze. So I've been in colder water. But I got hurt a little bit. And I'm in good enough shape, fortunately, that I was able to endure. I then caught an amazing wave. And they caught a second wave on my way back home. I only did one set of waves. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I don't want to go too crazy. Uh, but I'm out there by myself. Now, where I'm sitting on my porch right now, I can see the exact wave I was on. So that's how close I was to home. These little things can happen where you get hurt a little bit. Now, the reason that I didn't get more hurt, and part of it is, again, I have a really good board, which means that's why I didn't snap or get hurt. I'm very close to home. I do a lot of other security conscious things. People can see me. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. We, in America and a lot of Western countries, we get so used to other people taking care of everything. We say, hey, if, I, if there's a crime, the police will take care of it. If I get hurt, these people will take care of it. If there's a fire, the fire department will take care of it. And we get used to that. Now, part of reality is that when bad things happen, what you expect to happen doesn't. The idea that the police will always help you and solve all of your problems magically is kind of unreal. When I lived in England, I was robbed. I had my house robbed. Fortunately, I had renter's insurance because I didn't trust my roommates. I had my turntable stolen. I was a DJ. Someone stole my turntables, and they sold them to a pawn shop. I went to the police, I did the reports, I went to my insurance, my insurance company, awesome. They sent me a whole new set of gear. They replaced everything with brand new, amazing, really great experience. And I said, you know what? 
are the police gonna solve this? So I went to all the pawn shops in town. Now, if you walk out the front door of the police station, one of the nearest buildings within 100 yards, and you have to cross the big intersection, definitely within 100 yards, the front door of the police station. And one of the closest five or six businesses is a pawn shop. I walk in the pawn shop. The closest thing in the window are my stolen turntables. And you know they're mine because they were Japanese. So I'd actually brought them when I moved from Japan to England. I'd ship them by boat because it's cheaper than buying new ones. So they had Japanese plugs, Japanese writing, and were obvious, and Japanese boxes. Everything on them was Japanese. They were not English plugs. They did not look English. Literally, the closest building, the closest pawn shop, and nearly the closest building at all the police station. I walk in, and it's right there. And I walk in, I check them out, I make sure it's mine, I call the police, I wait an hour, they find the police come and look at it. Uh, they have, you know, security camera footage of the guy selling it. Obviously, the police never arrested the guy. Because police in England, and in fact, they've even announced this, they don't, they've decided they're not really going to solve uh, robberies anymore. They made an announcement in England, they're more focused on uh, cyberbullying. So you're more likely to go to jail for calling someone a bad name on Twitter than you are for robbing someone's house. Now, you can use whatever decision and calculus you made. You know that uh, I always use uh, very practical decision calculus. I like to look at uh, the numbers, if you will. I think if you go to college, you should earn the money back that you spend because it's an investment. And I feel like um, certain crimes are worse than other crimes. Uh, the UN recently published that they think a digital violence is the same as real violence. Now, I've had people send me death threats by email. It sucks. It doesn't feel very good. But I've also had a Marine beat me up and throw me down a flight of stairs. And if you're to ask me which one was worse, I will be honest. Getting beaten up and thrown down a flight of stairs was way worse and way scarier. The idea that someone calling you a bad name on Twitter is the same as someone hitting you with a pipe in the legs, no. But unfortunately, a lot of police forces are switching in that direction because it's political right now. I don't know why. I don't fully understand this idea. As you know, I'm not a heavy social media guy. But the idea of someone calling you a bad name is, being wor is the same as someone punching you. And they call it cyber violence. I don't understand that. Having experienced real violence, okay? Having experienced someone rob my house. I've, I've been robbed several times in my life. It's not the first time my apartment's been robbed. Probably won't be the last. That's why I have insurance. That's why I do a lot of things I can to protect my family as best I can. But this idea that someone else will take care of you when things go wrong is foolish. And it's not the police's fault. It's actually because the ratio of police to crime is wrong. There's not enough police to solve all the crimes. I saw a report that said in Boston, I think 98% of gun violence where the person doesn't die never gets solved. They never arrest anyone. You have to get murdered in Boston for them to try and solve it. That's horrifying. And again, it's not about blaming the police. It's always the ratio. Every police officer I've ever known has too much to do. The other problem is it's infrastructural. It's that they make them write enough tickets. They have to write tickets to generate money. It's really tickets is, and traffic enforcement is kind of a tax thing. And I know we're going down a political path. I'm just saying, rather than talk politics, I'm saying that they give the police assignments other than solving crime. They say either there's too many crimes or they say, oh, you have to write a lot of tickets or do these other things. And also, it takes a while to get good at solving crime. I think you have to be a traffic cop first, all that stuff. So there's other things in place but there simply aren't enough police to do all the tasks assigned to the police. So when the ratio's wrong, a lot of crimes go unsolved. So when you think the things are gonna happen, they're not. Same thing as when you have an emergency and you call the police, they're never gonna be there as fast as you want. Response time in America ranges anywhere from two to eight minutes if you're lucky. Most problems are over in less than eight minutes. Most problems are over in less than two minutes. So you have to, whether you're in America or other places, start taking responsibility for your safety. Start taking responsibility for your stuff. Start taking responsibility for your health. This is not a political episode. This is an episode about personal responsibility. This is an episode about understanding that a lot of the pieces of infrastructure that we assume are there, when we actually need them, they're not. 
We make a lot of assumptions when we're at home and when we're abroad, and they turn out to be false. When I was in high school, my friend drove his car without his seatbelt on. My friend is now gone. He made the assumption because he was driving the big, older car. I think it was a 60 or 70s large car, like a big saloon car. He assumed, you know what? Nothing will ever happen to me. If it does, the ambulance will get there in time. And he was wrong. And when I was 18, I lost my best friend. When I was in college, a lot of people made fun of me for uh, being obsessed with seatbelts. And they would call me Judge Green and pick on me because I don't, I'm really against drunk driving. I'm really against driving without a seatbelt. And they're like, oh, you're just trying to force all the rules. It's like, look, these rules are not about limiting your fun. I don't make my wife wear a helmet on her motorcycle because I think she looks like a dum-dum. I don't call her Red Power Ranger. That People don't even call her that in English. They call her that in another language. I had to ask her what everyone was laughing about and she told me. I don't do things to limit my family's fun. I do things to keep my family safe. And this is something I've moved into more and more as I become a father and feel this extra weight of responsibility. And this is why I want to share with you some of the lessons I've learned because sometimes when we've never encountered the need for help from different services or we haven't traveled abroad and had a problem, we don't realize that sometimes it's just been luck that's kept us safe. Accidents happen. It's just the nature of the world. Motorcycle accidents will never stop happening on my island. It's just the way it is. People drop motorcycles all the time. A lot of people here drive motorcycles without speedometers, without headlights. It doesn't mean you're safe. When people are out there with broken equipment, when people don't wear helmets, it doesn't mean you shouldn't as well. So when you're making decisions about your life, whether it's about protecting your home, blocking your doors, uh, your family's healthcare, all these different pieces, you can't always depend on someone else. Now look, the police do their best. I worked on ambulance for a long time and you do your best on an ambulance, but you can't always do everything when you work for these services. They're all overtaxed. And usually when you need them the most is when there's the biggest problems. There are people who call ambulances all the time when they shouldn't. We had a list of people in the district where I lived where you knew it was a fake call when they called and you have to respond, you can't. Unfortunately, you can't say, hey, you're off the list. People will call and you'll show up and they have a packed suitcase and they go, oh, I have a cold. And you have to take them to the hospital. And I've had someone in my ambulance when that happened and then someone got shot and we couldn't help the person who got shot. So the next nearest ambulance had to go help them. People take advantage of emergency services all the time. And it's another way that the people who are supposed to help you want to help you but can't because someone else is literally in the way blocking them from helping you. And it's unfortunate, but it happens. And it's always in every ambulance district, there's certain people that do it. And I don't wanna go into the nicknames that we have for those people, but I remember it very vividly Whenever you get a call from one of those certain numbers, you'd be like, man, every week this person calls, every week we have to drive to the hospital. And they are, anyone who already has a suitcase packed should not be calling 911. That's what, if you have enough time to pack a suitcase, you have enough time to drive to the hospital. Because I've been on calls where we get there and we save the person when they had about 10 seconds to go. I've been on ambulance calls where if we were another 15 seconds late, they wouldn't have made it. So there's people that take advantage of services, they slow down services more and more. Knowing how to do things is very important. One of the big projects I'm working on right now is a parental safety project teaching uh, parents how to be prepared for every type of at-home emergency. There's not a lot of universal guides and there's many parents who don't know how to handle different types of emergencies, whether it's drowning, whether it's fires, what do you do, how do Amber Alerts work? All these things can become critical. You think they won't happen to you and then when it does. So being prepared, you know, I was a Cub Scout for a long time, made it all the way up to Weebelow highest level before you become a Boy Scout, which, or no, yeah, before you become a Boy Scout. I only did Cub Scout, the little ones. Always be prepared, take a little bit of responsibility. Realize that whether you're at home or abroad, you're responsible for your family, you're responsible for your safety, you're responsible for understanding things. And remember, the laws of physics don't change because you're abroad. And if you take responsibility for these things, you can stay alive wherever you go in the world.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back tomorrow with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Serve No Master podcast. Join me on my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash serve no master.